please stand with me. I know you just sat down. Sorry about that. Um, But go ahead and please stand with me for the reading of God's Word um, in John 1. Uh, John 1. John 1, verses 1 through 18. John 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only one, God, who is at the Father's side. He made him, he has made him known. Let's pray. Jesus, you are exceptional, glorious. And Lord, the incarnation is the most miraculous thing that has ever happened, period. Lord, help us to comprehend that this morning. As much as we're able, help us to comprehend. And Lord, help us to praise you. Open our eyes, Lord, we're naturally blind and cannot see. We need you to do a creative work so that we can see and so that we can see your glory. We ask that you would bless this morning. We ask that you would help our hearts to listen. I pray for your strength to be clear for the sake of your name. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, many of us look forward to Christmas each year with joyful 
anticipation, don't we? We love the tradition, uh, the time with family, the lights, the gifts, the Christmas movies, etc. And we like to come to church, we do, and to hear the same stories and to hear about the baby in a manger. And that is good and that is proper and that is right. And we we want to come and we love, the, we love the warm fuzzies of Christmas, don't we? We really do. There's nothing wrong with that. But some of you are troubled by Christmas. This time of year, I mean, we talked about the joy of family, but there's also strife with family. There's stress, the added stress of any number of things, but certainly the holidays and extra things that need to be done. There's conflict often with family. There's maybe worry over finances, and we could go on. And thinking about all the hubbub around Christmas, you might feel as though it's false, it's fake, it's a mockery of life. Or even if you broaden that out, you might think of life in general that way. What's the point? We do the same thing over and over again, and like the sage in Ecclesiastes, it feels meaningless, empty. But no matter what category you're in this morning, whether you look forward to Christmas with, a, with uh, exuberant joy, or whether you dread it and it's a, a, just something to get through, what you need to hear from God this morning is what Christmas is all about. You need to hear a Christmas word. And what we have to understand is that Christmas is the pinnacle of all history, really, or at least the beginning of the climax of all of history. Christmas is epic, far more epic and important than the warm fuzzies. So it's fine to have the warm fuzzies, it's fine to talk about Jesus in a manger, but Really, that's just the prelude. And really, even in Jesus become, coming in that manger, it's far more epic and important than we often think about. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. Really, what's going on in Christmas and what's revealed in John 1 is Christmas is about God doing what it takes to give us the truth about things. And so as we enter this morning, we're going to hear, we're going to take a break from Matthew, we'll pick it up again last, next week, but we're going to hear from the Apostle John, writing in about 90 AD, several decades after these events happened, but one of the ones closest to Jesus. And he's writing, he's actually writing far from Palestine, he's writing in, a, in and around Ephesus, he's writing to a Jewish and a Greek audience, a Gentile audience in Ephesus, and he's reflecting on these truths after all these years. And John has one central aim in his gospel that he also has in the prelude, and it's this, believe. And that's the main idea of the text this morning, is this, believe in Jesus Christ, the Word who is God, who became flesh to fully explain 
God. That's where we're going this morning. Believe in Jesus Christ, the Word who is God, who became flesh to fully explain God. As soon as I say that, you might be wondering, well, why should I believe? Why should I believe that? Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, why should you believe in Jesus? Well, really, John gives us four reasons in this passage for why that is absolutely essential that you believe in Jesus. And the first we see in verses 1 through 5, the first reason would be this, the Word is God, creator, life, and light. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, immediately, you should be thinking about another book that starts with very, very similar words. In the beginning, God created. I heard a couple of you even whisper it, right? And John is intentionally leading us back there. He's intentionally framing these verses, drawing us back to Genesis 1. So go ahead and turn briefly to Genesis 1, because we want to understand what what freight John is bringing into his gospel. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. We see in that opening, we see the in the beginning, before anything was created, there's God. And did you notice, even in how John is framing things, uh, he's going to get to talking about creation, but he doesn't get to talk about creation till verse 3. So if you think about Genesis 1, in the beginning, and then God created, we're talking about the time span between the phrase, in the beginning, and God created in Genesis 1. Before the creation, in the beginning was the Word. Now why is John talking about the Word Uh, There's a couple reasons. One, I don't know if you noticed this, but in Genesis 1, God speaks. He speaks things into existence. If you reflect on that for a minute, that's kind of odd. If all there is is God before he creates anything, can't he just think it into existence? Can't he just think it and it happens? Well, of course he can, but what John is drawing our attention to is God spoke. He spoke things into existence. And that sets a trajectory in Scripture for God's Word. God's Word in the Old Testament is powerful. It accomplishes what it's sent to do. It is powerful to create. It is powerful to reveal. And it is powerful to redeem. So John is drawing our attention to that. But there's kind of a secondary reason. The primary reason is Old Testament, but there's a secondary reason. Remember what I said is John is writing to a Jewish and a Greek audience. And for the Greeks, 
this concept, the word, they would think of it as the rational principle that underlies the whole universe. Uh, that's what they would think of. Philosophers uh, talked about this idea that the rational principle, the word, the reason that underlies the whole universe. And John is saying, well, let me really tell you about what the word is like, the, the one that upholds the universe. And he continues, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So now we have, John is speaking of this word as a person, and he's speaking of this person before creation being with God, in accompaniment with God, side by side is kind of the idea. They're in the same presence together. We've got two people. And then he says this, and the word was God. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. How does that work? Uh, uh, John just said the word, this person, is separate from God. He's, th he's there uh, in accompaniment with God. But isn't it contradictory for him to then say the word was God? Well, this is where you get a little Greek lesson. A little tiny one, don't worry. You see, in that second statement, the word was with God, God has an article. And the only reason I'm telling you this is because in the third phrase, the God doesn't have the article. And contrary to what the Jehovah's Witnesses would want you to believe, that does not mean that um, God is indefinite, that there are multiple gods. That's not what this means. When, the, uh, when a noun, that's an article in Greek, often it stresses quality or essence, which is exactly what is going on here. When John uses the article in Greek, and again, this is the only reason I'm telling you this is because it's greatly significant, he's always talking about the Father. But in that third statement, he's not saying the Word was the Father, he's saying the Word has exactly the same nature and essence that the Father has while being at the same time distinct persons. That is what we're the, the start of what we would call the doctrine of the Trinity, that God has one essence, one nature, and yet there are three persons in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And John will mention the Holy Spirit later in his, his gospel. But what he's drawing attention to is... The one who created, the, 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 the one before there was anything in existence, there was only God, and God had at least two persons, and, and is it three before that? The Word was with God, the Word was God. And then he summarizes what he just said, this one was in the beginning with God. He just restated what he already said in verse 1. He's emphasizing it. He's getting us to think that the Word was there as a separate person from the Father, but God together. And then we get to creation, verse 3. So remember, in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, well, we just kind of talked about the that white space in between in the beginning and God created, in the beginning, actually, before anything was created, from all eternity past, was God and his 
persons communing with one another. In particular, the word is what John is highlighting. Verse 3, all things through him, that's the word, became. Now, we know from Genesis 1 that God has created all things, but what this is saying is that God created through the agency, through the means of his word, which actually is what we see in Genesis 1. God speaks and it happens. God speaks and it happens. So all things through the word became, and without the word became not even one thing which has come to be. Put it this way, anything that you see, that you can touch, that you can taste, anything in creation ultimately has its existence from that initial act of creation by God. But the reality is the word is so central, so integrally connected with creation that if you take away the word, nothing happens. Nothing exists at all. There would be nothing without the word. So the word is God and the word is creator. He's, John is building our conception of this word, this one. Verse 4, in him, in the word, was life. Now, we think about God and him being creator. He was uncreated. He's always been. For as far back as you can think and farther back than that, God has always been. He lives in and of himself. He is life. He is the fountain of life. Everything that is, is derivative from him. So this is not distinguishing between biological and spiritual life. Uh, God is the source of both. He is the fountain of life. And in the word, since he is God, he has that same quality of life in himself. Spiritual or biological, doesn't matter. In him, he, in the word, is the fountain of life of life. He continues, verse 4, and that life, that quality of life that we just talked about, the fountain of life, was the light of men, of people, of humankind. And here we can see the imagery of Genesis popping through. What's the first thing that's created? Light. The first thing that is created is light shining into the darkness. And what John is painting a picture for us is that this one who is God, who is the creator, he has life in himself. He really is life. And that life is light for people, for people. And he continues with this idea of light, verse 5, the light in the darkness is shining. And the darkness has not overcome it. It's not restrained it. It hasn't restrained the light. What's John doing? What's he doing here? Well, he, we can see because the light is of people, and really, if you were to read the rest of this gospel, you'd find out this to be true. The darkness in John's gospel is people. It is people under the dominion of Satan doing evil things in opposition to God. And John has a very bleak picture of humanity. Everyone is like that. Everyone is dark, evil, 
opposition to God under the dominion of Satan and doesn't have a choice about it. That's how they're born. That's what it means to be born as a sinner in this world. And John is using this picture. The only rescue from that is light. Light to overcome that darkness. You can see there the opposition of the darkness. He says the darkness has not restrained it, hasn't overcome the light. That speaks to opposition. And you will see that if you were to read the rest of the Gospel of John, you would see people opposing the light, opposing the word. But the light comes for people. It's not only, notice what he said too, the light is connected with the idea of life. We understand from the scriptures that People are evil. They're under the sway of Satan. They do evil things. They're in opposition to God. Every single individual, you, me, everyone, is under that category. And what that means really is you're dead. You are dead spiritually, which will ultimately lead to your death physically. Ultimately, and even John says this, you'll be resurrected. Even those who are dead spiritually will be resurrected with a physical body, but they, the, the, the ultimate kind of death is death eternal under God's wrath. And so John's setting up the picture here, this light, the one who has life, that what we need, the only solution to humanity's darkness and death is the one who is life in himself and who is light. The Word, the Word who is God, Creator, life, and light. So before we proceed to the next chunk of text, what we need to see is this. You need to believe in this Word because the Word is God, Creator, life, and light. And you need to believe that because you need to recognize your own darkness. I'm talking about you right now sitting there. If you don't think you're evil and you don't think you're dark, you're wrong. Recognize your own darkness and your need for the word of God, the creator who has life and light. And along with that, you need to acknowledge that God is a trinity who is moving and working in the word to save an evil and sinful people, a dark people. The word is God, and he deserves the full respect of who God is. Yes, the word became the baby in a manger, but the word is God. Second reason that you must believe. God sent John to testify about the light. Verse 6 through 8. John, God sent John to testify about the light. Verse 6. John f- switches the focus. He s- switches the camera lens. He cuts scene and he looks at someone else. A man came being sent from God. Named to him was John. Now, this isn't John the Apostle, this is John the Baptist, okay? This is John the Baptist. But we know who this person is, just John just told us. He is an authorized representative from God who speaks for God. He's a prophet. And he has a particular role, verse 7. 
This one came for testimony in order to testify concerning the light in order that all might believe through him, through John. The light is the solution. The light is coming into the world to bring life, to bring light to human darkness. But God just doesn't send the, the word, he does, but he also sends other authorized spokespeople to testify to that word. It's, it's not, Christianity is not a blind leap of faith. God has given testimony, and that's one of the things that as the gospel of John unfolds, you see it. It's not, there's testimony from multiple people, preeminent among them, as John is highlighting here, John the Baptist, but then from the word himself, there is ample testimony. God is kind. God is kind. It would have been enough for him to just send the word for us to try to work it out, that this is the word, but he also sends other representatives, other spokesmen from himself to testify to the reality that this is the light. John clarifies, that one was not the light. John the Baptist, not the light. Uh, He'll later be called a lamp. He'll later be called kind of a lamp, but he's not the light. But what is he? He came in order to testify concerning the light, testify concerning the fact of who the word is and what the word is sent to do. For why? That all might believe through him, and that him there is John. The goal of God's testimony concerning the light is belief. We have to understand what belief is. We talked about this a few weeks ago in Matthew, but it's the same thing in the Gospel of John. Really, John unfolds, and one of the things he does in his Gospel is there's plenty of people that say, are said to believe in, uh, in the Word, and yet who uh, don't end up staying the course. Why is that? Well, because John, throughout his Gospel, is actually honing in on what does it actually mean to believe. What does it actually mean to believe? And I used this illustration a couple weeks ago. Uh, Christian faith, belief, is not uh, the believometer uh, that you get in the department stores, right? Uh, you need more Christmas spirit, ramp that baby up in order that Christmas can come. That's not, that's not Christian faith. Christian faith is always, and this is how it's portrayed in the Gospel of John, entrusting yourself to someone. And in this sense, entrusting yourself to the Word and to God and to the Word who is God. Entrusting yourself. It's a transaction. Biblical faith is not merely assenting to truths. Now, it includes that, but it is a transaction between you and a person. It is a transaction between you and the word for him to give you life. It is total dependence. It is a not a one-time act. It is an ongoing reality in the Christian's 
life. It is total dependence from the day you start believing through your Christian life until, until you're with the Word. And it means you follow. The, the, the Gospel of John ends by calling uh, Peter to follow, to follow. And that's the consequence of true faith. True faith is not a one-and-done act. If you're putting your stock in a one-and-done decision, you should be very, very concerned. It is an ongoing entrusting of yourself, a total dependence, a total allegiance to the Word, who is God, to do what you can't do for yourself, namely save you from your own darkness as the life and as the light. And that results in you following him with your whole life. And that's why John came. That's why God gives testimony. The light comes, he's the solution, but God gives testimony to draw your attention that this is the one you need to entrust yourself to. This is the one. Some people say that, well, I don't know. I don't know if there's enough evidence. God has given plenty of testimony. If you deny his testimony, you're calling God a liar. That's what John says in his, his epistle, his first epistle. You reject the testimony, you're calling God a liar. Because God has sent not only the word, but he sent other representatives to testify to the word. God has sent his authorized representatives in the world to testify about his son, his word. His son is well testified, and so you should believe and keep believing. You ever go through your Christian life and, um, where sometimes you have doubts, right? You would believe initially, but then later sometime you're struggling, right? You're struggling. Say, well, what if this and what if that? Well, what do you do in those situations? Come back to how much God has testified concerning the word. So we've seen two reasons for why you should believe. First, the word is God, creator, life, and light. Second, God sent John to testify about the light. Third, this is why you should believe, only those receiving the light become children of God. Only those receiving the light become children of God. This is verses 9 through 13. Verses 9 through 13. John's been focused on John the Baptist, and now he shifts his focus again. Verse 9, the true light, which is enlightening every person or all people, is coming into the world. Uh, now, when he says true here, the true light, it's not like true versus false. It's genuine. So, like we said, John the Baptist, he said he's not the light, but he's kind of like a lamp. But you want the real deal? You want the pure light? He's the one who's coming into the world. And he's the one, what's his mission? To enlighten all men. To enlighten their darkness of evil. Verse 9 is kind of the transition. John set up for us. He, he gave us kind of this creation picture. And we've got the word with God. But really, verse 9 is a bunch of movement, right? This light beam is coming into the world in verse 9, verse 10, we see it makes landfall, so to speak. In the world, he was. The light came into the world. It was in the world. It became present in the world. 
and the world through him became. We already saw that, that the, the word whose life, whose light, who's the creator, made the world come into existence. Everything happened through him, and he's in the world. He shows up. And yet here's the irony, and the world did not know him. The world did not know him. Now, this isn't kind of like knowledge, like I know something's true versus not. Yes, there's this element of recognition, of recognition, but this isn't the kind of recognition that, darn it, I didn't recognize it. It's, uh, I made a mistake. This is culpable ignorance. Culpable ignorance. That's what you see in the Gospel of John. The Word does so many signs, and he's testified so much that there is no excuse for not recognizing who he is. And what John is here asserting is the world. What does he mean by the world? Well, he doesn't just mean the physical place. He means the inhabitants, the inhabitants of this world. By and large, the world, even though here's the word, here's the one who created everything, by and large, people didn't know him. He amplifies that even more in verse 11. Into his own things. Uh, He talks about objects. He's talking about stuff in verse 11. Into his own things he came. He came into his own things. What's he talking about? I think he's, because he's already talked about the world broadly, but now he narrows it. He focuses it. He came into Israel. He came into Palestine. He came among the people that had the covenant promises, that had God's prior revelation. And then we get the same irony and his own people Those who had all the advantages didn't welcome him, didn't receive him. Again, this is not innocence. This is culpable. This is culpable. that You did not welcome the word who is God, the creator whose life and light, and even those who had all the knowledge, all the advantages, they didn't welcome him. Now, John prates a pretty bleak picture, doesn't he? He basically said, no one in the world, no one in Israel recognized him. And you might think, well, then there's no hope. But actually there is. John has been painting a very bro- with a very broad brushstroke. And in verse 12, he, he shows the hope. But as many as received him, so there's some, on the, by and large, the world and Israel didn't receive the word, didn't receive the light, didn't receive the life, but some did. And as many who did receive him and welcome the word in that way, the word gave to them, those who received him, the right to become children of God. Now, we said that every, John's vision, and you you can see this throughout the rest of John, is that every human being is dark under the dominion of Satan. And are actually, he says this at one point, you're naturally children of the devil. That's what he says. So no one, no one starts out as a child of God. No one does. But... Those who receive the word who is God, who's the creator, who's life and life, he, the word, gives the right for people to switch from being children of the devil to being children 
of God. But what does it mean to receive the word? What does that look like? Well, John explains it to us. To those who are believing in the name, uh, his name, to those who are believing in his name, the name of the word. Now, that's significant because uh, when it talks about name, it's not just, oh, I know his name, but uh, God's name in scripture, that's his being, that's who he is. And the only way to be saved, as Scripture unfolds, is to call on God's name. And here, John is saying that to those who believe, who entrust themselves into his name, calling, not only recognizing who the word is as God, as creator, as life and light, but also are calling on his name for rescue, for rescue. Those who receive the word are those who believe. And here it's a present tense. And all you need to know about that is it's not just one-time act of belief, it's ongoing belief. Like we said, Christian faith is not a one-and-done decision. It is an ongoing life of entrusting oneself to the word. In verse 13, he specifies who these people are. Those who've received him, those are the people who have believed in his name, who are believing in his name. But here's the thing. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? Where does being a child of God become from? Yes, it becomes through belief. That's the response. That's the response that John is calling his readers to. But these people who are children of God, they're not born from blood, from natural birthright like Israel, neither from the will of flesh. It's not like a natural birth. There's no human decision involved, neither from the will of man or a man, this isn't like natural birth, but from God they are born. You see, dead people can't do anything. Dead people can't do anything. So what has to happen, well, you can't cause yourself to be born, can you? No one can cause themselves to be born Only God can. And the first cry of new birth is faith and calling on the word. Calling on the word. The source of faith is ultimately from God. The source of becoming a child of God is God himself. And that should be encouraging to you because there are times when you're, you're worried, you're like, am I actually entrusting myself to the word? Am I actually uh, doing that? Well, your faith is not in your faith. Your faith is in God. You're entrusting yourself to God. And I've prayed this prayer, and I hope you do too, when you feel like, do I, am I believing? Am I, am I real? Am I really a child of God? Well, where do you go back? Where's the source? God himself. God, give me faith. Give me faith to believe, to entrust myself to the word, to you. Entrust yourself to the word, to the light. Call on his name for rescue. And if you struggle with belief, call out to God for faith, who is the source of faith. You can't rely on any human-sourced advantage or will to be God's children. You can't rely on yourself. Not race, not intelligence, not upbringing. That's what he's saying, right? They came to the people that had the greatest advantages, and they missed it. So what do you do, right? It's, It's none of that that makes the difference. 
It's not race, it's not intelligence, it's not upbringing, it's not church, but only total allegiance and trust and dependence and following of the word will mean you are a child of God. We are all naturally children of the devil, and only through the word can we become, can we transition from being children of the devil to being children of God. So trust him, entrust yourself to him, have dealings with him, because that's why he came. Why do you need to believe? Well, one, the word is God, creator, life, and light. Second, God sent John to testify about the light. Third, only those receiving the light become children of God. And fourth and finally, the word became flesh to fully explain God. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh. Now, earlier, John said that the Word was God. Now, remember, he's writing to a Jewish and a Greek audience. Now, the Greeks wouldn't have been so much offended by hearing that the Word was God. Uh, They had that kind of conception. The people talked that kind of way. The Jews would have been offended by that. Like, what do you mean? There's only one God. And they were conceiving of him only having one person. John's saying, no, there is one God, but he has multiple persons, three to be precise. So he offended the Jews there, but here he offends the Greeks. Here he offends the Greeks. He says, the word became flesh. In a Greek conception, in the culture of that day, flesh was nasty. This human body, this human stuff that I can, uh, that I can feel, that was a prison for your soul. It was stuff you wanted to get rid of. It was stuff that was hindering you actually achieving enlightenment or whatever you want to call it, true life. And Remember, the Greek conception of the word was the reason, the, under, the underlying rational principle of the universe. So what John is saying here, it'd be sort of like us saying, science became flesh. Mathematics became flesh. And you're like, ugh, science is kind of out there. It's transcendent. It's good. It's, it explains the universe. Why would it become flesh? Or mathematics, it's out there. It's transcendent. It's awesome. I was a mathematician. Um, it, why did it become flesh? But that's the startling reality of what John is saying. The Word became flesh. He never ceased being God. He's still God. But he added uh, human nature to his divine nature. That's Christmas. The Word became flesh. And it is cosmic, epic. It is crazy. It is nuts. And it is necessary. It is necessary. The word became flesh. God from all eternity added, God the Son, the word, added deity to his humanity permanently. You understand that about the incarnation. The incarnation was not a once and done thing. And when Jesus was done, he said, all right, well, but time to get rid of this flesh now and go back to the way it was. He added humanity to his deity forever. It's permanent. It's permanent. And why? Well, John goes on to explain. This is profound. The word became flesh and dwelt. Dwelt is an under-translation. It is the word pitched his tent. Pitched his tent among us. 
Now, John's already referenced, uh, he's already referenced Genesis 1, but here what he's going to do is he's going to reference Exodus. In Exodus, the whole, the whole kind of burden of Exodus is God coming to dwell with his people, and that happens when Sinai, Mount Sinai, goes mobile in the tabernacle, in the tent. God's glory, we were just talking about this in equipping hour this morning, God's glory comes into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle so that God's presence dwells with his people. But notice what John is doing. He's saying the word became flesh, and that's like pitching his tent, pitching his tabernacle. God is pitching his tabernacle, but in a new way, in a person. The word who is God pitched his tent in a tabernacle of flesh. And he goes on, and we have seen his glory. There we're back to Exodus. Exodus uh, 33, we don't have time to turn there. But later today, you should do this. You should turn to Exodus 33, 18 and following. And there you will see, right after Israel sinned, uh, they're supposed to be getting this law. They're supposed to be dwelling near God. And then they blow it. They start worshiping an idol And Moses has to do a lot of damage control and pleading with God, don't leave us. Don't leave us. And in the midst of that, God says, no, I'm not going to leave you. And Moses says, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And God does. God does. He says, I'm going to, and all of this is in the context of making a covenant. God says, the the covenant program was on hold, and then God says, all right, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to have you make the Ten Commandments again, because he smashed the first copy. I'm going to have you make the the commandments again, so the covenant is on again. And then when God shows a little bit of his glory to Moses, he proclaims the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And what John the apostle is here saying is we, meaning we the apostles, have seen his, the glory, the glory of the word who is God, glory as Now, you've got a word there. Your translation might say something like the only son, or maybe if you've got a King James, it'll say only begotten. It's not only begotten. This word is used of uniqueness, of one of a kindness. It's used in Hebrews of Isaac, uh, Abraham's son. Now, Isaac was not Abraham's only begotten son, was there? There was Ishmael. But Isaac was Abraham's unique son. And that's exactly what's going on here. Literally, it's glory as of the one of a kind, with the implication, the one of a kind son from the Father. We, the apostles, have seen that. And that glory that he manifested in his tabernacle of flesh was full of grace and truth. Now, does that sound kind of familiar? Full of grace and truth, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, what's going on here is John is saying, John is translating that episode in Exodus 33, and he's saying, the glory we saw of the word is his steadfast love, which is what John translates as grace, and his faithfulness, which is what John translates as truth. So what John is talking about here is 
we are seeing, we are seeing in the sun this tabernacling presence of God with his people in a new way, in a covenant way, in a bigger and better way than what was going on with Moses. Here is the same glory that was manifested in a glimpse with Moses now brought in a covenantal way full of grace and truth. We see that glory. And he's going to continue that thought, but he interrupts his flow. Verse 15, he goes back to John briefly. This is a big parenthesis. If you have an ESV, they put parentheses around verse 15, and that's right. This is a totally parenthetical statement. He interrupts himself, and he says, John bore witness. Remember that guy that, that, that God authorized to testify to the word? He's bearing witness concerning the word, and he is crying out, saying, this one was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me, after me in ministry, after me in age, has become before me, before me in rank. Why? Because he was before me in time. John testifies that with the word become flesh, he has a higher rank than John because he has preexistence because he has pre-existence. So that just reinforces what John is saying about we've seen the glory as of the, only, the one and only from the Father. That's the one that John testified about, that he came from God. And then in verse 16, John continues his flow from verse 14. So he's, he's remember what John has said, we've seen his glory, glory is of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. How do we know we've seen him? Because from his fullness, right? The fullness, that the fullness of grace and truth. From that fullness, we have all received even grace in place of grace. Now, your translation might read grace upon grace, but like we said, John is using this word grace to refer to steadfast love, covenant love. It's a covenant reality. And remember, he's talking about really in Exodus, the giving of the old covenant versus a new reality, a new tabernacle happening with Jesus. And what he is saying here is not, you're getting a lot of grace through Jesus, although that's true. He's saying, we have received from his fullness even a new steadfast love, a new covenant love, a new grace in place of an old covenant grace, an old covenant steadfast love. And he supports it, verse 17, because the law was given through Moses, the grace and the truth through Jesus Christ came. He is not contrasting the law versus grace. That is a false dichotomy. Because even if you were to go back to Exodus 33, the law was grace. The law was grace. What he is doing is he is saying, yeah, you remember that grace of the old covenant, of the giving of the law? In replacement of that grace, we're getting a new grace, the ultimate expression of God's covenant grace and faithfulness, and that is through Jesus Christ in the giving of the new covenant. That's what John is framing here. It is paradigm shifting. Christmas is epic. The word became flesh to replace the old covenant with the new. Not bad for good, but better, good for better and best. 
verse 18, John caps it off. God, no one has seen at any time. Now, he says that after having seen Jesus. So here's the reality. Remember, when you draw near to the tabernacle, you don't get to see God directly. And even with Jesus, you have the word tabernacling in flesh, and you get to glimpse God's glory through that, but it's still not the full naked presence of God's glory, even in Jesus. That awaits the eschatological time, the, the end time. But this is the problem, right? We need to draw near to God's glory, the treasure of the universe. God, no one has seen at any time the one and only Son, God. He just starts piling up terms for the word. The one and only Son, God, the one who is in the bosom of the Father, the one who from all eternity was dwelling right there, accompanying the person of the Father, the most intimate representative of God, God himself, but God the Son, that one, that one explained, explained God. That's why he's called the Word. You see, a lot of people have intuitions about, well, God would do this, or God would never do this, or God is like this, or I think he's like this. I like to think of God like this. No, you don't get to do that. Only the word gets to explain God. You can't, you can't draw near to God. You can't approach him. You can't see his full glory. You would die. So God in mercy, God in mercy sends the word, become flesh, manifest the glory of God, still veiled through flesh, to explain what God is like. And not just to explain what God is like, but how do we get to him? You see, the gospel, the good of the gospel is not ultimately that you escape hell. The good of the gospel is not ultimately that you, your life is changed around. The good of the gospel is that you get to draw near to God's glory and to enjoy God for all eternity. If you're coming to God, you're coming to Christ for some other reason other than to get God himself, you might be an idolater. If you're, let me say that again. If you're coming to Christ for something else other than getting God himself, who is the treasure of the universe, and who the, the Son came, Jesus Christ came, to explain the Father, if you're coming for any other reason other than to draw near to God and his glory, because that is the treasure of your soul, you might be an idolater. So why do you, what do you do then? You, you see the magnificence of God's glory. You, you can see it in the Gospel of John. Jesus will unfold through his signs, through his miracles, through his character. Through, uh, he will show that he is full of steadfast love and faithfulness, full of grace and truth. He displays his glory, and that should make your mouth water and desire God. And if it doesn't, you should fall to your knees and plead to God, give me taste buds to see your glory, because that is what I need. And you entrust yourself to him. You can have it. You can have 
that reality of drawing near to God's glory, of, of drawing near to God, of knowing God, but only if you entrust yourself to God, the Word, become flesh, who fully explains God. So believe. If you haven't, believe initially. If you have believed, keep believing that in Jesus, believe in Jesus Christ, the Word who is God, who became flesh, to fully explain God. That is what Christmas is all about. That is, it is epic. So don't just think of Jesus as in the manger. Do think of him there, but be astonished. Because that's God's glory, tabernacling in a new covenant way with his people. Let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy of all honor and praise. You are the word. You are God. You became flesh for good. And we praise you. And we praise you that you have explained God to us. Because we are dark. We are evil. We are needy, and we would have no hope of saving ourselves apart from your work through the incarnation resulting in your death for your people on their behalf, for living the righteous life that we could never live, and then through accounting those things to us through faith so that we can draw near to God, the glorious one, and enjoy the fellowship of the Trinity for all eternity. We long for that. And I pray that you would change hearts of any here that do not yet know you. I pray for those who, of us who do know you that we would draw near to you in a, a, in a greater way and that we would love you, that you would grant us grace to keep believing, to keep going because you are awesome and we love you. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.